You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Uh, good evening, church. Glad to be here at the house of the Lord again. You know, I was just so shocked that uh, uh, Deacon Jeeve was up here that I almost forgot his name and messed up, but very thankful for you. And the missions initiative that the church is now embarking on, please, as, uh, as um, Deacon Jeeve said, please keep it in prayer and, and uh, ask God how you can help in that initiative. Um, we'll get right into the Word this evening. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 2, John chapter 2. And we'll be reading from verse 13 to 17. Please stand with me as we give reverence to the reading of God's word. John chapter 2, verse 13 to 17. It says this. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the ta their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we declare your holiness this evening. God, we declare your uh, majesty, your glory, O Lord. And as we've prayed already, I pray that you would receive our offerings of praise because you alone deserve it. You alone are worthy of it. And God, we ask for your mercy as well this evening as we embark in your word once again that you, by your mercy and your grace that you would soften our hearts, that we might hear your word clearly, and that, Holy Spirit, you would convict us and change us from the inside out. I pray, O oh God, that you would allow for life change to happen this evening. I pray, O oh God, that you would have your way, have your will among us, O oh Lord. Use me as your instrument of peace, I pray. In Jesus, your mighty name, we pray these things. Amen and amen. Tell someone, message someone the title of my sermon tonight, The Zeal of the Lord. The Zeal of the Lord. You may be seated. Have you ever been so passionate about something that the moment someone criticizes or talks bad about whatever it is, or even mentions anything negative about it, something inside you just wells up inside in anger, maybe your ears start to burn and you can't help but argue or defend whatever it is that you're passionate about? Maybe it's about your favorite sports team or your favorite athlete or player, when, when someone talks bad about your team or your player, something just snaps in you. What do you mean, LeBron? Jordan is greatest of all time. The NBA was different back then. Or maybe it's about politics that we get so passionate about. I, I, I see this a lot on social media, right? Uh, the moment that someone opposes what you believe or the politics or the ideology that you stand for, the party that you uh, voted for, the moment that someone opposes that political view, it's like you don't know what you're talking about, you're a sheep and all of this stuff. It's interesting the things that we get passionate about. 
But I wonder if we ever get just as passionate about the things of God. I wonder if we get as passionate about the holiness of God, especially during the times where others may deface or devalue that which God calls holy. His name, his son, his word, his church even. Do you, do, do, you, do we have just as much zeal for the things of God compared to the other things that we can be zealous for in this life? Our passage tonight in the Gospel of John recalls one of the only instances or, or recordings of when Christ became so zealous or burned with passion, with righteous indignation. This was when he clears out the temple. Jesus will actually do this twice in the recorded Gospels. The first time is in our passage, and the next time is during the final Passover when he returns to Jerusalem before his crucifixion, as recorded by the other Gospels. Both times, when Jesus clears out the temple, he burns with a zeal, this righteous indignation, as we'll see tonight. To clear, and, and, and let me just be clear, it's not for the temple, not for that, the building or the structure, but what that temple represented, the holiness of God and the type of worship that, that God deserves. My hope is that as we look closely at this passage tonight, that we would be forced to examine ourselves and what kind of worship that we bring to God, as well as how we regard things of God. My hope is that we would take the example of the Savior and develop in ourselves a similar zeal, a similar passion, a fire for the things and the holiness of God. Because, I mean, why wouldn't we have that kind of passion? We get passionate about everything else in this world. Why wouldn't we get excited about the person that surpasses all trivialities of this world and is truly the only one worth getting excited for? My prayer, church, is that especially in these turbulent times where the things of God are being treated secondary and not essential by the secular world, that we as believers, as, a, as the church, that we would grow to be zealous and passionate for the things of God and the holiness of God. So let's jump into our passage. Everyone say jump. Whew, it's kind of like a, you know, everyone's saying it one at a time here at the church. <laughs> Our passage begins with, in verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So from where we left off last week, after the wedding at Cana, Jesus, with his disciples and also his mother and brothers, his siblings, went up to Capernaum. Then as our passage says, because of the Jewish holiday of Passover, Jesus and his disciples went to Jerusalem, which is about 169 kilometers south of Capernaum, about two days' journey on foot. This Passover in our passage tonight is the first of three Passovers that John recalls or records in his Gospels. He, he records every Passover that Jesus partook of in his three-year ministry. Now, in case you didn't know, during Passover, Jews were required to go up to Jerusalem to the temple and offer up sacrifice, commemorating the unblemished lamb that was slain back in the days of Exodus, back in Egypt. 
if you remember that story, as a way of bringing judgment on Egypt, God's final plague on Egypt was the death of the firstborn. And unless the blood of an unblemished lamb or animal was smeared on the doorposts of your home, you would experience this plague as well, whether you're a Jew or an Egyptian. Now, the Jews commemorated this, this, this event every year. They, they still do so today. And Jesus, having come to fulfill all righteousness and being a Jew himself, participated in this festival, in this Passover. Now, we need some context here because maybe us who are 21st century Gentiles can miss the gravity of, of this festival and the meanings in this passage. Passover was a big event in Jewish culture. Jews from all over the known world and even Gentiles would pilgrimage, sorry, pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem to be part of these festivities. Picture this, at any given time, according to historians, the, the normal population of Jerusalem in ancient times was around 100,000 to 200,000, depending on the sources that you're using. During Passover week, According to historical accounts, the population of Jerusalem would balloon to about a million to two million, according to Josephus, uh, a Jewish uh, historian. So a million to two million new occupants of Jerusalem during Passover. Now, the focal point of the Passover, as mentioned, was the temple, because that's where you would go and bring the animal to be sacrificed. So imagine this influx of people coming into Jerusalem, all trying to get into the temple to offer sacrifices. I actually have a visual for you this evening, so you get a little idea of how how it might have looked like in the temple itself. This is a little diagram of the temple. The temple itself was this huge complex built on the mountaintop. Uh, it was divided by several courtyards by specific group, uh, for specific groups of people. On the outside, you, see, you might see it on the screen there, it's called the Gentile courts. That's the outer part. The inner part, the central part of the building, was divided in several other courts. The first one being the women's court, where only the women were allowed. Then the men's court, where uh, Jews were, uh, Jewish men were allowed. Then inner, and then, then, then further into the, that central complex was the priestly courts where the priests did the sacrifices. Now, at the center of all of that, if you maybe can see in that picture, is the Holy of Holies where only the high priest was allowed to go into and commune with the presence of God. Now, for the purpose of our passage, our focus is on the outer courts, the one labeled as the Gentile courtyards. This huge courtyard uh, to, to the right and the left of the, the, the central complex there, this courtyard was about the size of eight, about the size of two and a half football fields, about 861 feet. There's, there's, that, that's not a lot of space if you think about it. There's about a million to two million individuals trying to make their way into that temple. During the Passover, the Gentile courtyards would have been filled with masses of pilgrims, Jews and Gentiles alike, pushing their way into the temple to offer sacrifice and celebrate the Passover. It's recorded that the, the congestion in this place got so bad that the temple needed three, a battalion of 300 temple guards just to keep order in this courtyard, as well as a Roman garrison perched just nearby to quell any possible mob uprising. Now understand what adds to 
the chaos of this scene of, of all these people trying to push their way into these courtyards of the temple was what we read in, is what we read in verse 14. It says, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. In addition to the masses, there were live animals in the temple courts, oxen, sheep, and pigeons. The Jewish historian Josephus notes in his writings that there would have been upwards to 250,000 animals sacrificed daily over the course of the Passover week. So imagine all those animals along with the hundreds of thousands of people packed into the temple courts trying to get into uh, the celebrations. Now along with that, there were tables and booths and enclosures where, where these vendors sold animals as well as money changers. Now this addition to this scene, this understanding of how there's these, these, these vendors and these money changers at, at the temple courts is very important for us tonight to understand and, and understand why Jesus gets really mad and, and, and zealous in our passage. See, part of the Passover festivities was bringing an unblemished animal for sacrifice. But for those who were making long journeys from outside Jerusalem, this would have been problematic because you would have to travel miles or kilometers, long distances with this animal, risking blemishing it. Maybe the animal would get injured along the way. And if that was the case, when you brought that injured animal to the temple to be sacrificed, the priest would then reject it because it would no longer be unblemished. Those who were inspecting the animals... Uh, so this is where these animal sellers and these vendors came in. They set up these shops so in the Gentile courts to sell unblemished animals to these pilgrims who were traveling from far away. It sounds pretty convenient, right? But guess how much these animals cost? These sellers would inflate the prices so that they could get more for the animal than what they would normally cost. If you've ever been to Canada's Wonderland or, say, Niagara Falls, you know what I'm talking about here. Anything that you purchase in those, in those uh, tourist attractions, those theme parks, costs more than what it would normally uh, cost. Same thing happened here. According to historical accounts, these vendors were marking up their prices upwards to 99% above market value of those animals, selling animals for almost double the normal price. And these pilgrims had to pay for it or else their trip would have been wasted. They came all this way to offer nothing in sacrifice. But that's not the worst part about it. In addition to this, because people were coming from all parts of the known world, before they could buy any of these overpriced animals, they would need to exchange their currency. Now, if you ever exchanged money at the airport, you know how bad this is probably going to get. These money changers, according to John, in our, as, the, or as mentioned by John in our passage, offered horrible exchange rates, 10 to 12% exchange rates according to historical accounts. So picture this. After traveling long distance to get to Jerusalem and pushing your way through the millions of people to get into the outer courts, to the Gentile courtyard in the temple, you've, you, 
your, your animal is turned down because it's unblemished, so you have to go and, and now purchase a new animal, but first you have to go exchange your currency to a, with a horrible rate so that you can get the currency being used in Jerusalem. Then finally, after you get to go and purchase this overpriced animal and, offer, and, and, and finally have the opportunity to offer it up as a sacrifice, you also have to pay the temple tax. Because, yeah, the temple you know, got their cut as well. This is why in the second account of Jesus driving out these masses from the temple, recorded in the other Gospels, he says, he says uh, in, in Matthew 21, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers, a den of thieves in some translations. Man had turned God's house of prayer into a house of vendors, the, the place where man was meant to commune with God became a place of commerce and trade and dishonest trade. So how is the Son of God to react to all this? Well, verse 15 of our passage, it says, And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with his sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons to take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus takes a bunch of rope, probably the one, the same rope that kept the animals tied up and created a whip. You know, talk about whipping people into shape, right? Can you imagine the utter chaos that Jesus incites here? He's driving out animals. He's driving out vendors. Jesus is literally flipping tables at the temple. Coins and pigeons and feathers are flying everywhere. People are probably scrambling for the coins because they were just, you know, of the overpriced uh, of the overprices that they had to pay. Utter chaos. Pastor John MacArthur calls this another miracle because of the utter force and authority that Jesus would have had to display just to drive out these thousands of hundreds and thousands of people and these animals out of these courtyards. Not even the battalion of 300 temple guards could stop Jesus. And the apostle John gets to the reason as to why he includes this, this story in his gospel. Verse 17, it says, His disciples remember that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The disciples are recalling Psalm, Psalm 69, verse 9 here, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This was another sign of the Messiahship of Christ. Remember John's thesis in, in this entire gospel, in, in, in our study of it, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and, so, and by believing you might have life in him. John was recording more evidence of the Messiahship of Christ. The disciples remembered how one of the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament was that the Messiah would be filled with zeal, the godly zeal, a righteous indignation for the house of God. In fact, one of the Old Testament names for the Messiah himself was literally the zeal of the Lord. If you look at Isaiah chapter 9 with me, Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 to 7, it says, for, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from the time forth, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So now a question I want to answer for the rest of tonight's sermon is why? 
Why did Jesus become so zealous at the temple? You might think it's because, again, maybe it's because of the temple itself. For many of the Jews in Jesus' day, the temple was the focal point of the Jewish religion. So you might be thinking Jesus was merely upholding the sacredness of temple worship. And I would argue that that wasn't the case, I don't believe. We'll, we'll see next week, Jesus even says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Though the statement is about talking about himself, his body, it shows that he's not too concerned about the sacredness of this temple entirely. Not to maintain this, this temple worship that, Jewish, that the Jews prioritize in those days. He even says later to the Samaritan woman at the well, that a time was coming where people no longer worshipped in Jerusalem at the temple or in Samaria. So, so, so it wasn't about this temple worship that the Jews were, were doing at the time. So why was Jesus so zealous about the temple, or at the temple rather? I would argue that Jesus was demonstrating his zeal against certain kinds of worship being enacted at the temple. Jesus was demonstrating a righteous indignation against these kinds of worship that was plaguing the temple at the time. Remember what he says at the second time he drives people out. He says that my father's house is meant to be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. Jesus is rebuking the kind of worship that was being done in the temple, specifically three kinds of worship. Number one, insidious worship. Insidious worship. The fact that these traders were taking advantage of the Passover feasts and the festivals and, and, and the need and, and desire for these pilgrims to make a sacrifice to God merits Jesus calling them, or these vendors, thieves. Not to mention the insidious way that they went about it. It was considered an abomination to God in the Old Testament. All throughout the book of Proverbs, in fact, it talks about these dishonest weights, a symbol of deception used in marketplaces and trade places. Proverbs, just let me read a couple of verses here for you. Proverbs 11.1, 1, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord. Unequal weights and unequal measures are both like an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 20, Proverbs 20, verse 23, unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 16.11, a just balance and scales are the, are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. This is referring to the selling of goods at inflated prices. Sellers would use unbalanced weights to say something was worth more than what it actually was. Even in the Mosaic Law, God says in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 13, it says, You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. There's a sense of justice here. And again, God sees this as an abomination, what the traders were doing. So they were doing this very thing that God saw as an abomination in the temple of God, in the house of God. Now, what makes this worse is that the temple officials were in on it too. The priests who inspected the animals that the pilgrims brought purposely rejected those animals so that, they, so that the pilgrims would need to purchase animals from the stalls. Because, of course, uh, they would also collect the temple tax from that, from the inflated prices. It got so bad in ancient times that one of the names for these outer courts that we looked at this evening was called, it was called the Bazaars of Annas, the, the Market of Annas, named after the high priest himself. What it boils down to is that these traders and the, the temple officials were making profit 
of people, off of people's worship. There, as Paul describes, those that imagine that godliness is a means of gain in 1 Timothy. And this is nothing new, of course. Right? We see this all the time, even in our modern day. We see all these mega churches and these prosperity gospel churches always selling something, always selling a blessing that you might receive while, they're, while, while their pastors are flying in, in private jets. Even throughout history, the history of the church, this is the reason why the Protestant Reformation happened, because the Catholic Church was selling indulgences so that people would go to heaven. Listen, God hates this kind of worship. It's an abomination to the Lord because at the heart of it all, man is at the center of it. Man's ambitions, man's prosperity, man's desires are at the heart of this insidious worship. They're not collecting this extra money for God's glory. They're doing it for their own profit. And listen, church, as we think that as individuals and even as a church that we're in the clear of this, if we are going about our worship and ministry with ourselves in mind, with us at the center of our worship, we fall in the same boat, in the same judgment as these vendors and these priests. Listen, insidious worship is at the root of consumer Christianity. When you come to church with your benefit in mind, that is consumer Christianity. And similar to what these traders were doing. But, but Pastor Ian, shouldn't I come to church designed to be filled up and encouraged and refreshed and, with all, and all these things? Yes, but to what end? To what end? If you come to church to be encouraged so that you can be a better businessman and make a profit for yourself, the focus is on you. If you come to church so that you can feel better about your sinful lifestyle but lack any real commitment for change, the focus is on you. If you come to church to puff yourself up and your righteousness and show how, how pious you are, the focus is on you. And that is not worship, church. Some Christians treat church like a, a gas station, right? We're just here to get filled up so that we can be on our way. Worship is always meant to be directed to God, not ourselves. The end goal of worship, of ministry, of serving is always to bring glory to God. Listen, understand that even when we come here and join worship and service and we're tired and, and, need, and our hearts need encouragement or, or we want to be lifted up from the defeat of sin, even in that, the goal is always to bring glory to God. Psalm 51, David's repentant psalm after sinning with Bathsheba, when, when he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. When he says, Restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. The purpose of him asking that of God is in Psalm 51, verse 13 to 15. It says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. David desired to be restored, encouraged, refreshed in the presence of God for the sake of the glory of God. It's not for personal gain. Ask yourself, why did you tune into the service this evening? The purpose is for selfish means, because you need to pick me up or something. I ask you to repent, for the zeal of the Lord is against that kind of worship. 
Secondly, the kind of worship that Christ is against, that the zeal of the Lord is against, is insincere worship. Insincere worship. By the time that Jesus arrived at the temple, it was evident that it was more of a tourist attraction than a place of worship. Again, millions of people came to Jerusalem and, and the temple during the Passover season. And, but it became more of an event, an experience, or something that they did every year. It became a, a routine, or maybe even a ritual, rather than an act of worship. More and more, the worship at the temple had become insincere. This was all the more evident in the people's effort to bring an animal to sacrifice at the temple. It was more convenient for them if they didn't have to carry out an animal on the long journey of the Passover and just bought one at the temple instead. There was no effort being made to uphold these customs. Sure, the situation at the temple was bad with the vendors, but it's also because the hearts of those who were coming to offer sacrifices were no longer in the right place. God even makes this same judgment on the Jewish tradition of sacrifices back in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11. Um, it says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you the trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and, uh, and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. This is where Jesus' zeal is coming from. The reason for why God grew weary of their sacrifices and offerings every year is because they, even after they offered sacrifice, they would go back to disobedience. They would go back to living in sin. They would sacrifice every year, year say repentant words every year, bring the necessary animals and fulfill all the customs. But once the holiday was over, they just went back to doing things their own way, going back to sinning, going back to disobeying the Lord. Their sin proved the insincerity of their sacrifice, of their worship. And the reality is we too can fall under that same judgment. If we, after coming together and worshiping and singing these songs and hearing the word and praying, decide to go back to disobeying God after, going back to doing things our own way, going back to living for ourselves, Jesus says in Matthew 15 verse 7 that we are hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, the peop the, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts is far from me. Listen, you may fool everyone at church, but you cannot fool God. God desires sincere worship. Jesus also says in John chapter 4, verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus is talking about a sincerity to worship, a consistency between what we say in public and the privacy of our hearts. God doesn't want worshipers who just do the customs and practices and the rituals and the routine. He wants worshipers who are engaged with both their, their, their hands, their head, and their heart. And the fruit of that shows itself outwardly in obedience to God, in a life sincerely devoted to God. 
So ask yourself, in the ways that you worship, when you, when you sing songs or, or give your tithe or even in prayer, even this night, is your heart connected to the words that you are singing? Is your entire being engaged in worship of our awesome God? You know, I always think about it this way. If you're singing these songs that we just sang in, in, in worship, but don't actually mean the words that you're saying, you're lying to God. You're lying to God. God desires sincere worship, and his zeal is against insincere forms of worship. Lastly, the kind of worship that Christ becomes zealous against, as we see in our, in our, in our passage, is number three, irreverent worship. Irreverent worship. The people had treated the house of God like a marketplace. On top of these vendors robbing people of their coin, imagine all the animals there. I'm pretty sure they weren't trained to use the, the bathroom outside of the temple. So you had all this feces and these bird droppings all over the place that is meant to be holy and sacred in honor of God. The people showed a lack of care to the things that God called sacred. Not only that, but they showed a lack of fear and reverence to the holy God. This wasn't supposed to be uh, some city marketplace. This was the house of the holy God. And the people literally and spiritually desecrated. They were robbing people in the house of God. You know, church, if we come to worship with irreverence in our hearts, with a lack of respect for God and the things of God, we fall under the same judgment if we scoff at the holy word of God, if we do not think that the assembly of believers is important, if we consider our times entering into the presence of the holy God in prayer and worship is redundant as a waste of time or as something we can just fool around in, then we have become irreverent to the things of God. This church, do you not know who it is that you worship? Will you sing these songs of praises too? Do you not recall whose presence you are in when you come together in worship? This is the Lord. He who was and is and is to come, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. This is he who judges man with an iron rod, who slays sinners with a sword from his mouth. This is he who judges and makes war, who sits on the throne of heaven, whose eyes are like a, a flame of fire whom angels fear to look upon and tread on his holy ground. This is he who mountains quake at, at his passing. This is he who is called faithful and true, righteous and just. This is the almighty one, the everlasting king, the God of angel armies, the most excellent one, the most glorious one, the most wonderful and awesome one. This is he whom all of heaven and all of creation will someday for all of eternity will forever declare holy, holy, holy. How do we not have any sliver, any ounce of fear worshiping this being? Let me tell you as a pastor, I am absolutely terrified and broken every time I come up here to preach knowing the wretchedness in my heart knowing that God sees what's in me and, and knowing the holiness I'm meant to represent but yet fall short of every time. 
The believers in the Old Testament completely understood this. It's why only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. Because they knew that if they were in the presence of the Holy God, that they would be consumed. Where is our reverence? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 to 29 says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That's in the New Testament. That's even with the grace that Christ has bestowed in us. That's with the mercy and the access, the open door, the curtain torn. We are still to offer worship that reveres God, that is in awe of God, because he is still a consuming flame. Church, remember who it is that you worship. God is against insidious worship, insincere worship, and irreverent worship. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we close this evening. So some application here for us. So how then do we worship God? How are we truly to position ourselves as we come to worship this holy God? Jesus in Luke chapter 18 talks about these two men who came to the temple, this very temple that we've been talking about this evening. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. This, fairy, this Pharisee came to the temple and prayed this prideful, boisterous, prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. That Pharisee wasn't worshiping God. He was worshiping himself. The focus was on himself. He, he thought that the mercies and the grace and the blessings that God had bestowed on him was because he deserved it. Justified. He was proclaimed righteous. 
kind of position that we are to come when we worship the Holy God. Not like the Pharisee who, who was boasting about himself, not like the Pharisee who was, who was prideful about his accomplishments and his blessings in life, but like this tax collector who understood his position before a holy God. Who understood that he did not deserve to be in the presence of this holy God. Yet demonstrated this deep sorrow, this repentant spirit, a sincerity.
undeserving of mercy, undeserving of love, undeserving of the forgiveness that you offer through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, the reality is we deserve to perish. We deserve to be consumed by your holiness as we enter into your presence. But because you are good, it says in your word that you demonstrate your love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that we can have a way, so that we can access your throne of grace. Lord, I pray that you would humble our hearts. That we would not take for granted the privilege that we have now as your children, as those redeemed as those justified by the blood of Jesus Christ to enter into your holy of holies, to enter into your presence, I pray that we would not take it for granted I pray that our worship would be sincere that we you would maintain in our hearts and in, in our minds the image of your holiness that we would never lose reverence in the fear of you Almighty, I pray that you create in us, in this church, a blessed life, true worshipers, those who worship in spirit and in truth. Lord, we thank you for the ways that you are moving amongst us this evening, and we give you all the glory and all the praise in Jesus, your mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.